Hi, my name is Magdalena Morty and I look after the cultural programme here at Second Home. So we envision a world in which farmers, brands and policymakers join together to create a more equitable system. A system that both respects the world's communities and ecosystems. In this episode, we have brought the leaders of Patagonia, Dr. Bronner and Regenerative Organic Alliance. They're discussing why they have put regenerative organic farming at the core of their businesses and why they believe that this is the answer to climate change and fairer supply chains. I hope you enjoy. Thank you so much, Maria. We're so happy to be here and join you all with Second Home. I'm zooming in from Northern California in Sonoma County and wherever you're zooming in from, whether you are down in the urban forest, 6,500 trees in the middle of LA, basking in the sun, perhaps in London fields, or my dream workplace, your Lisbon location, where you get to go surfing and get back to your desk in time for those meetings. We're really happy to see you all and happy to join you to talk about the promise of regenerative organic agriculture as a solution to some of our greatest problems. And so today what we're going to do is I am with the Regenerative Organic Alliance, and I'm going to do an introduction to the work that we're doing at the Alliance. And just for a few minutes, give you an overview of how we see um, some of these issues around uh, regenerative organic and, and the solutions that it provides. Then I'm going to give an introduction of my colleagues, my dear colleagues here, Rachel and Ryan. And we're going to jump into a deeper conversation about why two of the coolest companies in the world are doing the work they're doing to support this kind of farming in their supply chains. And so first I will just start with who we are at the Regenerative Organic Alliance and what we're doing. And um, the ROA exists to promote regenerative organic farming as the highest standard for agriculture around the world. And we are a group of nonprofits and brands and farmers, all who came together to sketch out a vision for the future of farming in a way that honors all living beings above and below ground. We like to call it farming in the service of life. Industrial agriculture is quite the opposite. So thinking about industrial agriculture and factory farming of animals are really top contributors to climate change. And in turn, climate change is making it much harder for farmers to farm. So our conventional farming system is degrading our soil to dangerous levels all around the world. And scientists are even estimating that we have maybe 60 or 70 harvests left. So we've got to turn this, turn this thing around. Farmers and farm workers are also often exploited and the rural economies in the US and around the world are suffering. So um, the Regenerative Organic Alliance is seeing a solution by developing a certification, a label where we can help make clear calculated changes to our food and fiber systems to make regenerative organic the new model. And we're gonna do this with the regenerative organic certified label, which we'll get into in a little more detail here shortly. And um, just you know, to draw out a little bit of the problems of conventional agriculture is that they are, whether or not they're combined with regenerative practices, essentially these are based on the use of carbon intensive inputs. And so knowing that the production and use of synthetic pesticides and fertilizers has highly detrimental effects on our climate, on our biodiversity and on us. So what we do to the soil, we do to ourselves and degrading the soil will threaten our entire way of life from the productivity of our crops to the health of the foods we eat, to those personal body care products that we put on our body and our skin, to the clothing that we put on our bodies. These are all products that come from the soil in many cases. And so this is why Patagonia and Dr. Bronner's, along with the Rodeo Institute, um, came together to found this alliance for the regenerative for ROA. And each of these companies really uphold the highest ideals and base their business on organic and have very unique and visionary approaches to seeing business as a force for good. And so 
what we're going to do is just talk briefly about the three pillars of the ROC program, and then I'm going to jump into introducing you to our esteemed panelists. So the ROC program is built on three pillars. It's soil health, animal welfare, and social fairness to farmers and workers. The soil health and land management is about building healthy soil, building soil organic matter that helps it sequester carbon, absorb more water, retain more nutrients, be resilient in the face of droughts, and essentially creating a living sponge from the soil. The animal welfare pillar ensures ethical and humane treatment of animals so that any livestock are raised in pasture-based systems and ensured that they have access to um, an environment that lets them to express their natural behaviors. The social fairness to farmers and farm workers is a really critical component of our, our system, our three pillars. And really we can't consider the health of the planet without considering the health of our people and the rural communities where the farming is often happening. So um, the other point with the farm workers that Ryan and Rachel are both really experts on, and I can't wait to let them talk a bit more about their history in uh, working in social fairness, but like allowing farm workers to, to work in an environment that ensures their protection and safety, that they can earn a living wage, that there's no child labor used in production of those goods and a number of factors like that, on top of ensuring that farmers will get a premium because if they, um, with the brands who purchase from the rock farmers, they're guaranteeing a premium and a long-term contract. So that ensures further stability of, in our farming communities. And so without further ado, I'm gonna move into introducing Rachel Kepnes. She's the manager of the supply chain and social responsibility farms and special programs, quite a mouthful with Patagonia. She has a background in international labor rights, human rights and gender. And prior to joining Patagonia, she led social and environmental responsibility at a startup that was focused on creating business linkages for female-led artisan businesses. And in that role, she visited artisan groups around the globe from Peru to Ghana, South Africa, India, and um, has done all kinds of work in um, Social Accountability International, which established the first certification standards for social certifications to ensure worker rights. So she's gonna um, share a lot of uh, a breadth of her knowledge here with us shortly. Ryan Zinn is Dr. Bronner's regenerative project manager. He focuses on the international regenerative organic and fair trade supply chains and farmer training. He's been working in food and farm justice at home in the US and abroad for more than 20 years, then all over the world. And he is a great resource um, for all manner of questions on this topic. So let's jump into the first question. Um, you know, some people really don't think about personal care products and apparel as part of an agricultural supply chain. So I think let's first dive into that and talk about like what kind of agricultural products are you all using? And really why did Bronner's and Patagonia become so focused in how these materials are being produced? And so let's, um, if we start with you, Rachel, and then we'll move to Ryan and uh, allow just a few minutes each and um, yeah, have at it, Rachel. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth, for that great introduction to the ROA and to this panel. It's great to be here with you guys. Um, you know, at Patagonia, um, the materials that we use in our products have been crucial always, right? Our, we're committed to building the best product, and so materials are a really key part of that. Um, and basically, all of our non-synthetics are coming from agricultural products. So, cotton is a really big one, um, hemp, wool, ulex, which is a natural rubber. Um, those are kind of the, the, the products that, that we make from agricultural products. Um, and cotton for us is a really big focus. We've been using organic cotton since the mid-1990s. And as the story goes, we used to source conventional cotton, but we found that some of our store employees were getting sick. And we did an analysis and found out there was actually formaldehyde off-gassing from conventional cotton products. And when we learned that, we started visiting conventional cotton farms, and seeing much of what you just described about what they do to the, to the soil and to the health of the environment. And so we switched to organic cotton in one season um, and have been sourcing organic cotton ever since. And now of course with the ROC, we're starting to work on this regenerative organic certified cotton 
um, which is a really, really exciting piece of work. And so I think what's really important is we have to remember that things that we wear often are grown in the soil, which is some, a connection that we often don't make. Yeah, thanks, Rachel. And so Ryan, how about you? You wanna talk about the agricultural products and how they touch pretty much everything you all make? Yeah, no, absolutely. Thanks so much, Elizabeth. And say, thank you, Second Home, for uh, giving us this opportunity to chat. You know, about 20 years ago, um, the Bronner family made this decision um, to transition all major raw materials. So all of the production that we have and everything that goes into our soaps is all plant-based. And to transition that over to organic, what we found was we really wanted to make sure that there was an opportunity to, to be able to source organically, um, not only for the environment, but for everybody that uses our soap. And then what we quickly found was that, that there was quite frankly, just zero transparency in where some of these products were coming from. Everything mm -hmm. like coconut oil and palm oil and mint oil, um, everything was coming from you know, global supply chains. And we really had no idea what was happening on the ground with both farmers and farm workers which led us to do kind of a crazy thing, which was actually set up our own supply chain, set up our own projects all over the world um, to actually create um, really the first and only at the time organic and fair trade palm oil and coconut oil operations in Sri Lanka and Ghana. And this allowed us to be able to invest, work directly with hundreds and now thousands of farmers virtually all over the world um, to be able to provide the large majority of our raw materials. And this gives us a real good sense of what's happening on the ground, partnering with small farmers, um, and to ensure that's actually integrity in our supply chains. Um, that was one of our really biggest concerns was that the impact that we were having by sourcing all over the world um, was actually positive. Um, and we can actually build this out through a fair trade as a framework to be able to partner with farmers and to actually be able to invest in the communities where we're working. And that became really critical for us. And so we now work and have our own projects are really close third-party partners um, in a number of countries from Sri Lanka to Palestine, to Ghana, Samoa, and throughout the Americas. Pretty amazing, the work you've done. And um, I'm sure you'll take a moment, but just to plug the book that is has just come out called Honor Thy Label. Yeah, my, my, my colleague in Bosque Lezon just released a fantastic book called Honor Thy Label, which really kind of digs into all of the trials and tribulations of setting up your own international organic fair trade and regenerative supply chains. Um, it's a kind of fascinating read. And, uh, you know, I think it gives a good sort of snapshot into the commitment that Dr. Bronner's has made over the course of the last 20 years to actually do this um, in many different countries with many different ingredients. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely for those of us who like to do the deep dive, I, I think, into like understanding where things come from. And it's um, pretty remarkable journey that the company has been on. Rachel, do you do you want to talk a little bit about the uh, kind of growth and demand in organic cotton now before we move on to our next question? Because I think that one's really fascinating. I just saw a call out this morning from the textile exchange and everybody trying to get a handle on like what is going on. There's this huge issue, which is actually a kind of a good one in some ways, but yeah. Yeah, well, it's really interesting because, you know, we started sourcing organic cotton in the mid nineties and organic cotton has been less than 1% of the cotton grown around the world since then. And so I think in a lot of ways, we feel like it has, in the past few years, we've kind of felt that it failed because we haven't gotten to beyond 1%. But I think definitely the past few years, we're seeing so much more interest in organic cotton, and it's, it's really exciting, but you need three years to transition from conventional to organic cotton. And so that's a lot of where the kind of the gap is, is that we're trying to grow the supply, the demand is there, but then it takes a while to make that transition. And then unfortunately, in the organic cotton supply chain, there have been a lot of challenges with, with fraud, for example, um, and, and kind of other big challenges that are going on, going on in the world that are creating kind of this rush and this crush on the organic cotton supply chain. So there's definitely, I think, a big focus now um, to start planting and to start making that transition. And that's why Patagonia, we started um, sourcing also cotton in conversion um, as of last year, which is cotton that's in the transition process to organic. Um, it's difficult for farmers to make that transition. They don't often get premium for the cotton as it's making the transition to organic. And so we're trying to promote that transition by sourcing it and by providing a premium for the cotton as it's making the transition over to organic. And so, yeah, I think there's definitely a lot of demand and a lot of exciting stuff happening in the cotton space and RFC is also a part of that for sure. For sure, yeah, we hear from um, textile and uh, cotton producers all 
pretty frequently here with at the ROA. It's interesting how it's reflective of the general market for organic foods also that here in the US, 1% of our cropland is dedicated to organic production. So we have to look at that other 99% of conventionally farmed cropland as an opportunity. And like, if we can find ways to really help farmers get those premiums from growing organically and, and maybe even further on getting regenerative organic, that um, we'll convert more and more cropland. Um, I, I'd love to get into this question on like what led both of your organizations, your companies to establish ROC? Like what, what, what kind of needs were they trying to meet or what were the problems they were solving for? And, and Ryan, why don't we start with you this time on that um, origin story? And yeah, absolutely. I, th I think for us, there was a couple of things that really led to this greater collaboration on regenerative organic certification. I think one, our own work on the ground, noticing that climate change is having a really big impact across the world, particularly in the global south and particularly in rural and farming communities. And so we saw that there was really this need to begin to build up our own efforts and campaigns around resilience within our own supply chains. Um, and then we also noticed that Quite frankly, you know, here in the United States and in other places, you know, having certified organic is just quite frankly not enough. It really doesn't address some of those social issues that Elizabeth was talking about, both in terms of, you know, farm worker welfare and rights, um, the fact that farmers are often being paid poverty wages for the, you know, products that they produce. And so what we noticed really over the course of the last five or so years was that, you know, as this sort of connection was being made a little bit more connecting agriculture and regeneration um, as a way to address climate change, everybody and their brother began to sort of claim that they were producing things, quote unquote, regeneratively, um, without really any kind of ability to sort of verify what their claim is. And so we were really concerned that the, the concept of regeneration was going to go the same route that this idea of sustainability was. It's not legally uh, binding or there's no legal def definition. And as a result, basically, you can throw a sustainability label on anything without any real kind of like backup. So we actually met um, our leadership at Dr. Bronner's and, and that of Patagonia, um, met with a number of other um, civil society actors and uh, research outfits like the Rodale Institute. And we wanted to make sure that we can come up with a system that builds upon the long work of both organic certified and fair trade certified, as well as the fine work that's been done in the animal welfare sector and really bring it all together under one roof because we wanted to be able to codify all of the good work that's been going on and then make sure that the consumer has some real verifiable way to know that you know, what they're paying for is in fact regenerative, organic, meets fair trade standards, as well as animal welfare criteria. Um, and that's the basically kind of the origin story. And so we're really excited to be able, you know, one small contribution to this larger, I would say, global movement. And Rachel, how, how about over from Patagonia's side, like looking at, um, you know, how, how you all got into, besides like moving from the organic cotton and then to the realization, like, wait a minute, we need to go, we need to take this further. Yeah, I think people are often surprised that Patagonia is in the agricultural space and that we're working on this. Um, but, you know, it's been something that's been really um, important to our founders for many years. Um, and we founded Patagonia Provisions, which is our food business, in I think, uh, 2012. And so that's when we really, as a company, started looking at the agricultural system, looking at how it was broken and wanting to try to be a part of the solution. Um, and then also around five, six years ago, we started getting really excited about this idea of regenerative, doing our research as well, um, and coming to the same conclusion, as Ryan said, that we needed some sort of a certification um, to communicate to the consumer really what regenerative means. Um, you know, regenerative plus organic was really, really important to us, is really important to us. Um, we felt that, you know, you can't regenerate the soil if you're putting chemicals in it. And so that was that was really the thinking behind this combination between regenerative and organic. Um, and, and so I think, oh, and we wanted a holistic system that looked at, you know, the animals and the people and the soil. And so what I've heard also is that we kind of were really aligned with Dr. Bronner's and just coming to the conclusion that this creation of this certification was really important for the industry um, and to support the regenerative organic agricultural movement. Totally. That leads to the next question about what role does collaboration play here in this work? And really, oftentimes businesses are trying to compete with one another and, and keep this like supplier kind of secret from the others or something like how, why, why were you all 
so much more open to this concept of collaboration? Sure. Um, That would be great. I mean, I I think from us, like our sort of origins were really, you know, collaborative in spirit. And we realized that, you know, even now as Dr. Bronner's continues to grow and, you know, we're over a hundred million dollars in sales, um, we're still a relatively small player in the global economy. And so we realized not only for us to be able to have an impact in our own supply chains and the communities where we work, um, we really need to partner with others. And that means partnering not only on you know, partners that actually produce retail products, but also on the manufacturing front. We also partner with a number of folks on the technological front, just because we see that there's a big need to really build out capacity more broadly um, in the communities where we work and within our own network. And so we've seen this as an opportunity to um, really kind of leverage our own experience, but also the work that we're doing with others. And so this means that for just to give an example, with some of our own projects, what we've done to really diversify them and to be able to support farmers bottom line is to begin to support their commercialization of products that quite frankly, you know, we'll never put into soaps or a Dr. Bronner's products, but it allows farmers to be able to diversify. We can leverage all of our kind of certification costs and begin to partner with other brands and spread regeneration out in a much quicker way. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I would love if you could talk a little bit about your friends over there um, with the olive oil project too, just speaking of in the spirit of collaboration and reaching across any aisle or border of any country. I, I just, the story blows my mind. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, part of our formulation for our liquid soaps includes olive oil. And so what we notice is that, you know, the center of origin and the majority of the world's olive oil comes from the Mediterranean region. And as a family, as Dr. Bronner's, as a family of uh, Jewish soap makers, um, there is a real big effort to be able to look for ways to collaborate amongst different cultures and countries. And so as a result, um, back in really the early days of our um, direct sourcing, we began to collaborate with farmers um, both in Israel and in Palestine as a way to, you know, in a very in a way symbolic way um, to source from both places and bring together different cultures in a way that can kind of live under one roof and under soap. And so we source the majority of our olive oil um, in the West Bank in Palestine. We work with a number of small scale farmers there throughout the region, but also source from Israel as well. And this is one sort of way just to demonstrate how we might be able to collaborate um, and really erase many, some of these perceived differences that we might think we have. Yeah, thank you. Uh, when I first uh, first started this position, I was at, uh, there was this Regen Summit and Rose, your former CEO at Patagonia was the keynote and she got up there and lit a fire under everybody at this thing. Like it is all about like, this is, there is a need for collaboration, transparency and urgency because we don't have time to mess around. So I would love you to take this on and talk about how um, this kind of philosophy has infused your work. I mean, it's essential, right? Our, our mission now is that we're in business to save our home planet. And we can't do that by ourselves. You know, we are almost a billion dollars now, but we are also still quite small. Um, And so, yeah, it's it's, collaboration is so key. I mean, as illustrated by the partnership with Dr. Bronner's and Rodale to create ROC and VROA. Um, You know, it's it's just, it's so important to the work that we do and it's so important to what we do every day. Um, You know, Patagonia talking about kind of bringing people together we were the founders of the Sustainable Apparel Coalition with Walmart, which I think is a surprising partnership that, you know, we saw a need and developed that partnership for this organization. And so it's definitely something that we've done throughout our history. Um, and, and in the textile and apparel industry, especially now, right, we need to work together in order to change the practices that are detrimental to our people and to our environment um, and, and work also in partnership with our suppliers and the farmers who, who grow the cotton. And so it's it's a key part of all of this work um, and a really exciting part, obviously, (laughs) of this work to learn from others, from other industries as well. And not without challenges, too, to secure that, like like what happened with some areas where monsoons wiped out a lot of the production of the cotton that was expected. And, um, you know, there's a lot of challenges inherent in that. And yet you will stay focused on that open kind of transparency and collaboration. I love that. Definitely. I think the key, you know, for us working at the farm level, this this ROC project was one of the first first times that we started doing that. And Mm -hmm. for an apparel company, it's a very different way of working to be sourcing cotton at the farm level instead of placing orders the way that we normally do at the factory. And so 
it's required a lot of partnership, close communication, and transparency with our organic cotton suppliers who have been a part of this project with us. So it's, it's a, lot, a lot of work to get there together, for sure. So much. It's, it's amazing how much, um, how much is behind the scenes there that people may not understand or know about the cotton supply chain. Do you want to give us a little, a quick rundown on that? Like just kind of the, um, for other apparel companies who might be wanting to seek organic and regenerative organic cotton, like what kind of challenges are inherent in there and what is the typical business model for those? Sure. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's very common for apparel brands not to know what their supply chain is, right? So um, many brands might know their tier one or their finished good factories, but they may not have gone deeper into the supply chain. Um, and there are a lot of different entities all throughout the supply chain, brokers and agents. There's there's so many different actors in that. Um, I have a really great infographic that I won't show now, obviously, but it shows kind of the entire supply network. And it's just so many arrows, so many different entities, all a part of these apparel supply chains that we don't think about when we buy a t-shirt. Um, right. So I think the mapping is really, really kind of like a good first step. Mm-hmm. And then I think one of the ways that we have been successful in this program is that we worked with existing suppliers in our supply chain. So um, they were already kind of plugged in to doing our production and had farm projects on the ground so we could go directly to them. And I think that that enabled us to succeed a little bit more in this project. I think it's hard to go to the farm level and then try to build the supply chain back up to the product, which sounds like Ryan, that's what you guys did, which is really incredible. Um, but I, I think that at least in this project, starting with our existing supply chain was really beneficial for us. Yeah. Ryan, do you have, I, I see you nodding a lot. You have, um, I just, I, I just, I'm agreeing with everything Rachel's saying, so it's just nodding my you know, shared, <laughs> uh, shared experience. Right. Yeah. Why don't we move on to the next one? Like why, because we're, we're actually going to run out of time really quickly. This went by so fast, and there's a ton <laughs> of great questions coming in. But let's talk about why is this work so urgent? Why is it so desperately needed? You know, I I guess from, you know, my perspective, I see really, you know, regenerative organic agriculture is kind of one way for us to address what I think is kind of like this triple crisis, right? So we've seen in the last year, you know, global inequality peak, COVID and climate change kind of all come together at once. And, you know, you've got almost a billion people around the world that are involved in food and agriculture in some way. And by having a framework like regenerative organic to be able to operate with that really supports all of these values, you know, building up soil health, you know, resiliency in rural communities, um, fair trade for farmers and workers um, and support for animal welfare. This is really one critical way to do that. And so we're kind of in this race against time to be able to really transform the, the global farming system away from industrialized, chemically dependent agriculture to something that's much more holistic. Um, and it actually provides a pathway for farmers. I, I don't want to add too many things all in at once, but, you know, here in the United States, we often talk about the average age of farmers being up in the late, I know, high 50s, almost early 60s, and many of them are aging out. And interestingly enough, in virtually every place where we work from in Ghana, Samoa, um, and even in India, um, there's a a similar generational gap in large part because a lot of young people don't see a real future for farming. And so we want to be able to provide a way that people can continue to stay on the farm, live a dignified life, but also continue to provide these ecosystem services like carbon sequestration um, and food security um, in a way that can really basically meet all of our needs. I love that that concept of like lifting farmers up so they are heroes and sheroes in the community and not looked at as like, you know, the poor farmer down the road or something. So it's, it, I think that perception is really important to kind of turn around and get y- younger generations more interested in, in delving into farming. It's also a really high risk endeavor, you know, it's not, it's not like you're going to make a lot of money as a farmer, but you might have a really great quality of life and produce great quality food and fiber for your family and community. Uh, Rachel, how about you? What do you think about like, why, why is it so urgent? Why is it so desperately needed? I know you've touched on it a bit in um, talking about the supply chains, but yeah, maybe go a little deeper. Yeah. I mean, I echo what Ryan said, you know, as you said, at the very beginning, we have 60 more years of the top so- topsoil. So it's the switch to regenerative agriculture is, is so urgent and so key. I think in the apparel space, it takes a long time to make these changes. You know, we started our first regenerative organic certification certified um, projects in 2018 and our products 
then they they only came out in 2020. And, you know, it's the lead time is a long time. And then to shift things takes a long time to shift business practices, to shift the way we do things. Um, all of that takes a lot of time and effort and commitment. Um, and we don't have time, right? We need, we need, to, we need to make the changes. Um, and so it's just, it's just so crucial. And as we were talking about at the beginning with the organic cotton and needing to make that transition, you know, we've, as I said, we've kind of failed in the past 20 years to grow organic cotton beyond the 1%. And, and now we, we can't fail anymore, right? We need to, we, we need to increase that. We need to, um, to see, you know, the organic cotton continue to, to increase. And we have other partnerships also with other organizations all within the industry trying to do that um, through the Organic Cotton Accelerator, which is an organization that we work closely with also as part of our OC work. They're also really a part of this industry strip to try to increase organic cotton. Yeah, no, they're doing amazing work with like 25,000 farmers, I think, in India just in the last few years. Like it's, it's um, their impacts to be really tremendous. And um, yeah, I, I think just uh, moving on from that in the interest of time, like let's talk about a little bit about how smaller brands and businesses that are just starting out. And I think perhaps many of the folks who are um, taking office space there with Second Home, um, this if you're a small brand trying to ramp up or prioritize kind of environmental and social fairness principles in your supply chains. And, and Rachel, maybe you could give some tips to those, um, those folks. Sure. You know, in some ways, small brands can do more than big brands, right? Because you're, you're more lean, you can kind of make decisions and, and change things more quickly. So it's really exciting, I think, for those small brands who want us to kind of start off on the right foot. Um, as I was saying before, you know, kind of mapping, knowing what your, where, where your supply chain is, having, establishing um, long-term partnerships with suppliers who are aligned with your values, all those things are really key. Um, I think also relying on certification and existing initiatives, especially when you're small and just starting out, can be helpful, like the ROC um, and, and like other certification programs that already exist. That's a good way to kind of have a third party to support that work. Um, and so, yeah, I, th I think those are kind of two of my, my initial little tips and say of how to get started in this work, but also just, you know, to be speaking with others in the space, as we've talked a lot about, collaboration is so key. Learning from others, a lot of you know, brands will take time to chat with you. I, I've, I've spoken with a lot of smaller brands to talk with them about our work and kind of how we've approached it. Um, and so it, it's such an exciting time right now for regenerative organic agriculture, but also for kind of sustainability and social responsibility and all of these things. We're seeing so much enthusiasm and excitement for it. And so it's a great time to be in this space and there's so much to learn. Yeah, I think it's, there's a huge awakening too among, um, you know, this. there's this generation of, of purchasers and consumers who can swipe on their phone and they can, you can find out so much information now about what you're buying. And a lot of people are really interested in that. And, and also in demanding that there's some authenticity, that there is authenticity in the claim. And so I think that's, um, you know, there's a lot of opportunities for us to be able to provide that to those type, types of discerning um, purchasers and people who have a whole suite of values that they bring into the store um, when they go make a purchase. Ryan, how about you? Do you have some tips for like how smaller brands or businesses that are just starting out or want to really ramp up and carry on that kind of high bar uh, sourcing strategies? Yeah, I mean, I think Rachel made some great points. I mean, certainly collaboration really is a key. You know, one of the things that we learned early on um, was that for the projects that we, you know, either own and are vertically integrated with or are, you know, we closely partner with is really finding them additional buyers. There's actually lots of raw materials coming out of these pre-existing projects there that, you know, quite frankly, you know, would go into the conventional market, which means that farmers aren't paid an organic premium. They're often aren't paid a fair price. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there that sometimes we're missing. And, you know, just thinking about things like really basic things like, you know, fair trade coffee and cocoa, um, for example, and tea, the vast majority of that just gets dumped on the conventional market because there just isn't quite 
enough market pull for that. So I would start in those places um, in large part because the infrastructure is already there. You know, it's really difficult to go in and say, I'm going to start this new project and begin to organize farmers. Um, there's many cases where farmers are in fact are already organized and they just need to have good pathways to be able to market their products um, and be able to demonstrate and tell the narrative of how they're doing regenerative practices. Um, and then the other thing I would just say is, you know, find one or two raw materials or ingredients that either can really display kind of all of your regenerative bona fides um, or that you can, in fact, you know, move the needle on. I, I think there's a lot of, you know, raw materials that we work with in our own end of the world, things like palm oil, um, which is really, really a high risk, you know, commodity. Um, there's so much environmental and social destruction related to palm oil. And so for us to be able to work, you know, in Palm Center of Origin in West Africa with smallholder farmers um, in a diversified agroforestry system, that allows us to not only demonstrate that this model can in fact work, but really, you know, be able to sort of set the bar, so to speak. And so, you know, being able to collaborate with other organizations and projects that are already doing much of this work, I think is a great place to start. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We didn't even get to talk about Palm earlier. I think we were going to, but um, I guess now in, We'll see uh, if we can get through some of these questions and maybe come back to the palm situation. Um, there's a lot of great questions. And if I, I think you all can see them as well, are there any you, um, if you wanna have a scan and look at those, I'm gonna just um, address the one, the first one that came in from Grace is about, are there any regenerative qualities to the farms you work with beyond the standard organic certification requirements? And do you work with small farms, which may be practicing stellar regenerative methods, even beyond organic certification requirements, but are too small to afford to certify as organic? So um, I think that question is for you all, and then I can maybe address it as well. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll pass it to you there, whichever one of you wants okay, to Okay, I'll, I'll just, uh, you know, discuss it. So, you know, kind of like our baseline, you know, for us to work with any type of raw materials that it has to be organic certified. That is a great starting off point. And in fact, within the organic standard, there are many regenerative aspects for sure. And so what we wanna do is really kind of go beyond that and ensure that you know, some of the really core values within uh, regenerative ag organic agriculture, things like crop rotation, um, you know, soil fertility, mulching, you know, cover cropping, those types of things, you know, really enhancing biodiversity and returning a lot of nutrition in it back to the soil, whether that's the compost or what have you, um, really is kind of the, some of the basics that we really apply in the majority of our projects. And you really do bring up a great point. You know, it's really difficult, particularly, you know, all over the world to be able to access these global organic premium markets if you're a small farmer, because the costs are sometimes quite high. And so in most cases, it's best for those farmers to be able to collaborate and work together, whether that's an association or a cooperative, um, that means that they can actually pull together their resources and get certified as a group and be able to market that that way. Otherwise, it becomes quite, you know, quite frankly, really difficult to be able to do so as an individual farm. But there are different ways you can approach that, particularly here in the United States with cost share um, and other options. Mm -hmm. um, there's a really great question here about um, talking about the need for people to change their consumption habits. And I think especially when it comes to clothing and thinking of fast fashion, you know, like that's a really important topic there. And um, the example that this attendee gave was that the commoditization of certain products like chocolate is a big issue. We can change our farming methods, but also need to change how we consume things to make a difference. Sure. Um, on the consumption side, it's definitely something that Patagonia has thought and done a lot about um, our buy less demand more campaign right now is, is basically um, focused exactly on that. Um, and so, you know, we have, first of all, we really focus on quality so that you only have to buy one product and it can last longer. Um, we have a worn wear program, so we'll buy back um, old products and then resell them as new. We repair everything. We have an ironclad guarantee. So, We'll repair everything and we'll take it back if it can be repaired after a certain point. Um, and so we're really kind of trying to always push the fact that you don't need to consume so much that less is better. And um, the most responsible, like kind of most responsible, the most high quality garment will last you, you know, however long. Um, and we don't need to have so much more stuff. Um, and so that's definitely something that we feel really strongly about and have been working on for many years. People might be familiar with the Patagonia Don't Buy This Jacket campaign that came out um, 
you know, so it's, it's definitely a really big focus and something that we think about a lot. And it's, it's a challenge. It's not, it's not easy to just, to, to kind of change that, especially in our society these days, but we're trying to do what we can to support folks in that way. Uh, Ryan, anything to add to that as far as we're like consumption habits and um, you know, I see, you know, a, a number of comments, you know, or questions in, in the comment section about consumption and, and different modes of production, whether that includes animals or, you know, what we should do in terms of, you know, our, our production and, you know, can regenerative organic agriculture actually feed the world? You know, there's a lot of myths out there as far as, you know, organic, for example, not having the same productivity as um, industrial, for example. And so, you know, to be honest, at least in our particular case, really our goal is trying to mimic nature as much as possible. Um, and so that really builds upon a lot of the indigenous, you know, technology and knowledge built over many, many thousands of years. And so um, what we've noticed, for example, in a lot of um, those crops where we grow tree crops, we can actually double production in many cases. And so not only are we able to, in fact, um, grow enough, you know, you know, production of like palm oil to feed fainardies, but also enhance the production at a local level to enhance food security as well. So, you know, I, I'll, I'll leave everybody's individual sort of personal consumption choices to themselves. Um, certainly there is an overproduction of food globally, um, but I think that we can actually do it in a way that is regenerative, um, sequesters carbon and is much more healthy. Well, there are a lot of questions in here coming in about animal welfare, livestock consumption, factory farming. I, I mean, I would say first, I'm gonna just read out this one question here. Um, question for Elizabeth, scientific literature shows that intensive livestock needs less food and thus might emit less CO2. Furthermore, studies such as grazed and confused show that regenerative agriculture creates more greenhouse gases then they are able to sequester in the soil. Wouldn't it be best to reduce or stop eating animals? And the source was the table debates. And um, I think there's still a lot of debate out there in the scientific literature. And in fact, it's interesting because Ryan probably can speak to this as well, since David Bronner is um, a long time, 25 year vegan. Many folks at Bronner's, I think also um, elect to eat a vegan um, diet and yet are really strong supporters of the animal welfare component or pillar of the rock framework. And that is because incorporation of animals into agriculture is really important to bring those nutrients back and that managed grazing in a way can recover grasslands in a way that, um, you know, is demonstrated by Alan Savory. So there's a lot of different scientific literature out there to present either side. And, and as Ryan just mentioned, like people need to make their own choices on whether to eat animals or not. But um, bottom line, if you do intensive rotational grazing or well-managed grazing, that you can really build um, very healthy soil by farming that grass, by raising healthy grass and managing it in a way that is um, returning a lot of fertility to the soil naturally by those animals. And otherwise it's where would you, where do you get the fertility? So there, there are some questions around that, like how can you have agriculture without some input um, from animal manures? Uh, Ryan, do you have anything to add to that or Rachel? Well, I would just note, you know, there's a, a fantastic study done by the current, uh, the Marin Carbon Project at UC Berkeley, where they use rotational grazing um, on grasslands out there for ecosystem recovery and carbon sequestration. And, you know, they, you know, as John Wick says up there, you actually, you know, quite frankly, you don't have to eat any of the animals. They're just, you know, sort of one more element within the ecosystem. And so I think we just have to take an ecosystem landscape approach as opposed to really kind of putting all these things into silos, which is kind of how we got onto this problem in the first place, you know, by industrializing, you know, you know, food production, however you want to look at it. So um, I would say in, indeed, you know, there's, there's great debates on sort of, you know, whether or not we should eat animals or how, what their role is in, in the ecosystem in agriculture. Um, but certainly if our goal is to try to recreate, you know, nature, um, certainly animals play a part of that. Yeah. Rachel, I have one for you here. This attendee is aware that large companies are committing to rock, uh, but as a small apparel brand, it makes them nervous knowing the supply of regenerative organic grown cotton may be monopolized over the next few years. Have you discussed a way how to incentivize your farms and spinners to spread the love more evenly in the near future? 
And um, I'll let you answer, but I would just also point this person to our buyer criteria encoded into the ROC framework. But um, I'm sure you'll probably speak to that as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think this is where the, the room for collaboration and partnership and all those things come in. I don't think that it's necessarily the big brands coming in and taking all of the supply, you know. Um, there's definitely a lot of excitement for ROC Cotton um, with our suppliers and with many other projects. And so I think there's definitely opportunity. I, I, I hope that it won't become monopolized by the larger brands. I know that, you know, the projects that we're working with are definitely starting to expand beyond what we're going to be sourcing from them. And so I think there's so much opportunity um, and, you know, would be happy to connect through Elizabeth or, um, you know, through another avenue to connect you to some of the folks who are doing this work on the ground. Um, I mean, I think right now it's, there's still definitely challenges in how to bring this ROC content into our supply chains. Um, but if there is so much enthusiasm for it, that I think that the more that people get involved, um, the more that we'll be able to scale the project. Uh, there's another question about what can you do as a consumer to help push this movement forward and what should you avoid? I'll just jump in real quick on that one as to watch out for greenwashing. And now people are even starting to call it regen washing. And um, here at the ROA, we insist that regenerative is intrinsically linked to organic. And you can't be re regenerative if you're not organic. You can be on the pathway to that and start to incorporate some of these methods of farming that um, include minimizing the soil disturbance and keeping the soil covered and rotating crops and um, adding biodiversity and all of those things. But we really believe that if you're using synthetic chemicals, then you're destroying the soil microbiome and you're emitting all those greenhouse gases and associated pollutants that come with the use of synthetic fertilizers and pesticides, then you can't be um, regenerative. And so, you know, just knowing that as a consumer that you need to um, be, be wary of those, like the natural claim, the sustainable claim that is really just a watered down um, label with no teeth. And, but yeah, there's, I'm sure as a consumer, there's other ways to push this forward and I'll let both of you address that. Well, I think it's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, since the majority of folks attending, though, I do see some farmers and other folks working in the agricultural field, um, you know, the vast majority is or all of us are, are uh, you know, consumers in one way or another. And really, to be honest with you, I, you know, at least I can only speak to my own personal, you know, sort of experience. And that is really prioritizing organic and fair trade, you know, as available. Um, I and have relationships with ranchers, regenerative ranchers in Colorado. And so I source directly from them for any animal products I were to buy. Um, and, you know, to, to the degree that I can really looking for, you know, those local, you know, sort of industries, you know, bakeries and things like that, that I can support. Cause I think, you know, for me, you know, you try to bring together all of your values kind of under one roof. And that's sometimes really very difficult because of the reality that we live in. So I think it's just kind of a combination of, you know, prioritizing organic and fair when possible relationships with farmers when possible, um, and then also supporting your local independent, uh, you know, food producers. I, I agree with Ryan. Um, you know, I, this is not a plug, but Patagonia Provisions on the website, is there, we're featuring other organizations and other companies that are starting on the path towards ROC, and so that could also be a good place to get access to brands and products that are on this path if you're interested. There's been a couple questions about water related to cotton in its both in its production and in the processing of the fibers. Do you want to tackle that one, Rachel? Sure. I am not a, our environmental or water expert, so I will um, preface that with that. But um, you know, I think we have seen that organic cotton um, is using less water than conventional cotton, and so that's definitely been part of the shift to. Organic, and then with ROC, I think we're kind of still trying to do our research, but we're hoping that with the cover crops and the increased soil health, that you'll also have water benefits with the water usage for cotton there. Um, you know, most of the cotton that we're sourcing is, is rain-fed, and so that, you know, that is, that is certainly a piece. Of course, that's a challenge because then you're subject to the changing weather, which is connected to climate change. So. Um, it's definitely all interrelated, but I know that there's a lot of work and research that's been done in that space um, that is available. So. I've read it's um, like each increase in percentage of organic matter is the equivalent of another 20,000 plus gallons of water per acre. So as you continue to build that healthy soil and create that living sponge that it can absorb that water and hold on to it. 
Um, Ryan, any thoughts on that um, as far as just water use in, in general, like as far as what you're seeing in your supply chains and, and some of the... Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that we've noticed in, in virtually all the places that we're working um, is that water stress is sort of like that one important element of, of climate change that we all have to face. And so, you know, Rachel and, and Elizabeth, you made some, you know, really important points about, you know, organic using certainly, you know, less water in terms of irrigated systems. You know, we've really focused in India where we work and source all of our our organic and fair trade uh, mint oil. Um, there they use, you know, mint in a rotation with other crops. And so really it is making sure that we can help support and incentivize um, those regenerative organic practices like cover cropping, for example, um, producing leguminous crops that can actually sequester nitrogen um, and build up soil organic matter. And really it's the application of compost um, that we found to be really kind of the most bang for our buck. So that's taking advantage of all of the sort of, you know, animal and, uh, you know, plant waste in the neighborhood and to be able to compost that whether in large scale kind of, you know, bigger compost operations or actually using vermicompost. And we've actually seen just, you know, huge sort of returns on that um, that addresses not only sort of our water issue, but also, you know, fertility as well. Yeah. Great. Gosh, um, there's still so many excellent so many questions. questions. No way we're going to get to <laughs> maybe one more. And I, I wonder what we think about answering the, what are the main challenges that farmers find when transitioning towards regenerative ag? What are the main barriers they face besides price? Like let's think about on the ground, they call it the transition trough where there's sometimes a dip in yields. And so maybe you all want to address some of those kind of challenges from the ground on the ground perspective. Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> You know, I think so. We're working through our suppliers directly with the organic, smallholder organic cotton farmers in in India, um, and so we've definitely had challenges with some things like the cover cropping or the crop rotations because we don't they don't have water year round. They can't pay for irrigated water, and so you know that's definitely kind of a challenge that we're looking at with with the farmers and the farm groups of kind of what what other practices can be done to ensure that there's continuous cover. Um, I think also with any certification, there's just challenges of, of getting certified, right? There's the challenge, documentation challenges and, and all the different policies and procedures. And, um, and so I think that's been a big learning experience. Um, but I think we were kind of lucky with the, the areas where our suppliers kind of chose for our projects to be. A lot of the farmers were practicing a lot of these practices already, right? And, and so, there wasn't maybe, and they were all already organic. And so maybe there wasn't as like kind of steep of a learning curve as there may have been in other situations because they had already some of that foundation. And that's been really helpful for us also in this project. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, I'll just say, you know, like our approach, you know, and definitely there's many ways to do it, but really, you know, there's so many challenges for farmers in general transitioning to regenerative organic is, you know, a big part of that. Um, but for us, it's been be able to provide sort of technical support, um, which I think is really critical. Uh, Pre-financing, which is really important. There needs to be some, you know, sort of guarantee for farmers to, you know, as they make this transition, that as they potentially face bigger risks or crop loss, um, they need to have sort of that accompaniment and commitment from their buyer. Um, and then certainly it's a commitment to um, sort of look for diversification in other ways that farmers can actually build up their resiliency um, and increase their income. Um, so those are a number of the ways that we've kind of continued to work with it. But I think really, you know, financing is a is a big part of it um, because that's really kind of putting your money where your mouth is when it comes to a true commitment to your partners. This episode was brought to you as part of our Breakthrough Podcast series. Subscribe to keep up to date with upcoming episodes and head to secondhome.io forward slash culture to see what events we have coming up. I'm Magdalena Morsi and I'll see you next time.